He's definitely not a Jewish guy. And he's like, I love gefilte fish. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Each Schmaltzy podcast episode revisits a personal story told at a Jewish Food Society live event. Pull up a front row seat to hear the original live stories from the stage. Then we'll go behind the tales with the storytellers for more. Today on Schmaltzy, entrepreneur Liz Alpern. Liz is the co-founder of the Gefilteria, a New York-based food venture that celebrates Jewish foods from the Ashkenazi culinary tradition. She is the co-author of the Gefilte Manifesto and the creator of Queer Soup Night, a global event series highlighting the talent of queer chefs and raising funds for locally-based social justice organizations. Liz received her MBA from Baruch College's Zicklin School of Business and has been featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, the Forward 50, and the Cherry Bomb 100. But we think Liz is one in a million. Here's Liz from the Schmaltzy stage where she shared her story in front of 200 guests at a special Nasty Women version of Schmaltzy at the 14th Street Y in the East Village. So uh, as a Jew, I am inherently an outsider. But the truth of the matter is that I haven't generally felt like one. You see, growing up in uh, Bridge and Tunnel, Long Island, I was the kind of kid who could hang out with the jocks or with the potheads or with the debate club nerds. I was all of those things. I was voted friendliest in my senior year of high school. I could find something to talk about with anyone. This is who I was, popular. Everything changed at the age of 27 when I decided to go to business school. See, we were just starting our business then, the Gefilteria. Uh, We were on a mission to revitalize and reimagine old world Jewish foods. We were going to start with the much maligned and often misunderstood Gefilte fish, but we wouldn't stop there. We were going to build an empire to take on Manischewitz to muscle in some shelf space in that depressing kosher aisle of the supermarket. And since I didn't really know the difference between uh, an LLC and a sole proprietorship or accounts payable and accounts receivable, I thought, you know, I should probably dive in and uh, learn something about business. I applied to one school which I thought would be the perfect fit for me because it was at night, it was part-time, so I would be surrounded by my fellow entrepreneurs, or so I thought. I came to my first day of classes, uh, and I pulled up to uh, what the school lovingly referred to as the vertical campus, and I stared up at this giant building, and it struck me that this building bore a resemblance to the Wall Street exit of the 4-5 train, throngs of clean-shaven men in tailored suits riding up escalators. I had ridden my bike to school from Brooklyn to Manhattan, uh, so I was dressed very casually. I was pretty sweaty. I had messed up my hair, my very carefully styled lesbian haircut under my bicycle helmet, 
And mine was the only bike locked to the bike rack outside of school. But I was not intimidated by the finance vibes. I can hang with the boys. And I could find something to talk about with anyone. So in the first few weeks of classes, when we were invited to pitch businesses in in our class, I was delighted to have the opportunity to share a little bit about myself and get to know my fellow students. One by one, the business bros got up to pitch their businesses. So first somebody comes in and somebody comes up and they're like pitching this business of a liquor delivery app. Okay. The, The whole room, you know, shouts out, Cheers, man. And then uh, somebody else gets up and, and they're pitching this social media site for real estate agents. And, I'm, and, and the whole room is like, can never have too much social media. And then another guy gets up and he pitches a, a creative condom company. And, and the room just rings out, great way to penetrate the market. And then I get up and I start passionately explaining my love for old world Ashkenazi Jewish traditions (laughs) for gefilte fucking fish. And I was met with blank stares. You see, it occurred to me in that moment that most of these people had never actually worked outside of the corporate setting so for them, this was a very fun exercise in, in pitching their ideas. But for me, I was the only one actually living my business. And I was living a business grounded in ground fish. You know, if, if for the first time maybe in my life, I realized I have nothing to talk to anyone about. And, and, I, and even though I had stood up in front of the room only moments before, I felt invisible. And it wasn't that people in business school weren't smart or interesting. They were smart and they were interesting. It was that they were straight, really. And, and, and not just straight as in straight, but straight as in straight-laced. Where were, where were all the gay people at business school? I, I was convinced that if I could find my fellow homosexuals, I would feel more comfortable in this setting. But I could not find them anywhere. The only gay guy I met early on, he was immaculately dressed, always. He probably subscribed to one of those meal kit services. My Brooklyn Dyke energy was clearly unsavory to him. We did not bond over rainbows. We'll hear the rest of the story in a little bit, but first... We have Liz here with us in the studio. Hey, Liz. Hey, Amanda. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. So, gefilte fish. Yeah. It's a dish that's divisive to say the least. I was a pretty adventurous eater growing up, but when I saw that jar coming towards me, I ran. I mean, so did I, Amanda. I, I, that's why I have a gefilte fish company. I would never, I never touch that jar. I would not touch it. So I had to change. I had to turn it around, you know. Can you give us a little like history primer about gefilte fish? Like, what are the origins of it? Maybe even how we got to the jarred version that a lot of us know today. Yeah, I mean, I think that the most important thing is that the word gefilte in Yiddish means stuffed, 
And so most people don't know that. So gefilte fish actually means stuffed fish. Um, and so when gefilte fish was first made, which is many centuries ago already, the, the ground up fish would actually get stuffed back into the skin of the fish. And the essence of it is that um, if you were, say, under-resourced, you could get a very small fish, um, take out the, the meat inside, mix it up with eggs, with breadcrumbs, with all sorts of other good stuff, with spices, with onions, and you'd actually stretch how far that fish could go to feed your family. So it was a really clever way to, to feed your family. It was a really kind of a sign of the grit and resourcefulness of the Ashkenazi cooks uh, of the past. And like now we throw away a lot of the fish skin or the head or, you know, I mean, it's like you never would have done that four centuries ago in uh, northern Germany, you know. Was gefiltefisch something that you grew up eating, the jarred version? Did it grace your family table? It definitely showed up on Passover, but again, I really, I really passed it over. I would not eat it. I was not interested in in the jarred stuff. And it wasn't until maybe I was seventeen or eighteen when I first had homemade gefilte fish that I even was willing to entertain the fact that this could be really, really good if it was done right. So was that your gefilte fish like aha moment? Like was that when you knew you wanted to dedicate your life? To go filter fish? <laughs> no, that was it was a slower roll than that, but I, I definitely opened up my heart to gefilte fish at that time. But I didn't really go on a mission to uh, revitalize gefilte fish until um, I was a little bit older and in my early to mid 20s. And I started making gefilte fish uh, because I worked with Joan Nathan, uh, the cookbook author, and uh, she used to make gefilte fish every year. And so I would go and I'd get the fish for her. And that was when I first made gefilte fish from scratch. And I realized, wow, this is, first of all, it's not that hard. You know, it's like not as mysterious of a process as it might seem. Um, and it's really good if you make it yourself. And it was soon after that, that I met Jeffrey Yaskowitz, my business partner. And we kind of schemed and realized that if we could change the face of gefilte fish, that would be, that would be quite a feat. And that would we could do we could really do anything from there so that was that was the beginning of it i don't think i ever and i'm not I, i'm not sure i ever really wanted to devote my life to gefilte fish but here i am <laughs> that was about <laughs> 10 years ago <laughs> that we started this thing so tell me more about that time you made gefilte fish with joan nathan well joan used to get a crew together to make gefilte fish every year um, we were testing for her book at that time, Keisha's Kugels and Couscous. So I was just really exposed to also a lot more about gefilte fish at that time. So I think that was also very influential to me is just seeing that gefilte fish didn't just have to be the blob on a plate. Did you get to shop for the fish? Yeah. I mean, people build relationships with your, their fishmongers. And so even if that fishmonger during the year doesn't carry whitefish and pike or carp, like a lot of fishmongers will carry it around the Jewish holiday times. And so if you're buddy-buddy with your fish guy, you know, you get in that special order and you get the fish. And so I'm friends now with my fish guy in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, Shipwreck, shout out, best fish shop. And I went in this year to get a bunch of fish before Passover. And even then I go in and he's like, what are you doing with all this? You know, and I'm like, well, I'm making a filter fish. And this guy... He's definitely not a Jewish guy. And he's like, I love gefilte fish. And he's like, I can't believe you're bringing this to me. And his friend had just brought him fresh horseradish ground up because he knew he liked that. So I gave him some fish and he gave me some horseradish. 
And anyway, I know we're talking about where we I got to pick the fish up from Joe Nathan, but really like that's kind of what it is. It's like you get you get your guy and then you you that's where your fish comes from. All right. As riveting as it is, I, I think we may have to put a slight pause on the gefilte talk. And I want to go back into something that you said in your story. You described your upbringing as being from Bridge and Tunnel, Long Island. Paint me a picture of that life or what was it like? Well, you know, I'm from Long Beach, uh, Long Island. And so people are very familiar. People in the New York area know Long Beach because they go to the beach there. It's very common to go to the beach there uh, during the summer for New Yorkers. And um, I'd say people from Long Beach might be a little offended by calling Long Beach Bridge and Tunnel because folks from Long Beach really, really love being from Long Beach. They, I don't think when you're from Long Beach you see yourself – as a suburb of New York City, even though obviously you are. It's like Long Beach has a very unique identity because it's sort of like it's an island off of Long Island. It's a barrier beach island. So the vibe is very beachy, California. You ride your bicycle everywhere. Like I never had a car. Very few friends had cars because you could like ride your bike around, you know, all the partying you did, all the firsts of your life, they all happen on the beach. But, you know, it's still... Not New York City, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just not. Sure. I do love it. I do love it. I'm proud to be from there. Taken the train to Long Beach many a time. You also mentioned that you were voted friendliest in your senior year in high school. You know, it's a funny thing to put in the story, and it's absolutely true. But, like, I lost my yearbook in Hurricane Sandy, right? Because, you know, my parents got super flooded. And there was no sentimentality like, oh, my senior yearbook. You know, I didn't give a shit. I threw that in the garbage. You know, I didn't care. And so that's like how I feel about being voted friendliest. Like, I'm pretty sure nobody gave a shit about those things. Am I allowed to say words like that? Yes. Okay. I don't think anybody cared. So the secret was that I was a nice person and I got along with a lot of people and I hope that I'm still that way. Well, in my opinion, you are. Thank you. One of the other things that really struck me, right in the beginning, you said, as a Jew, you're inherently an outsider. Do you still feel that way today? The thing is, I think that, um, I mean, this could launch me into my whole Jewish rant, but um, I really love living in New York City because I don't, I feel like I, I feel like as a Jew, we're just very normalized here. I think something like a quarter of the population in New York City are Jews. I live on the edge of Hasidic Williamsburg, which is, you know, a trip in and of itself. And even though there's a lot of frustrations about that, I also find it, I don't want to say comforting, but there's something familiar about it. And, you know, we alternate side parking is suspended on the Jewish holidays. All the grocery stores are like putting out their Hanukkah displays. Like, I like living in a place where it's a normal thing to be a Jew, um, culturally speaking. Um, I like the culture of that. And I like, you know, in my neighborhood, we can hear the Shabbos siren on Fridays. And I happen to live with a ritual leader. So we really take Shabbat, like Shabbat is a big moment. So it's really funny when it's like the Hasidic siren is going off and we're like logging onto our Zoom Shabbat, you know, like just real talk. That's my been my life this whole pandemic. But, but yeah, I mean, yes, I think that any minority is going to have, a, 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 in essence, some sort of outsider status. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think it's just a matter of, do you feel safe in your environment? And so New York for me still, like it feels like a safe environment. I feel really good about it. 
I think that a little bit of outsiderness is important for empathy, right? If you really, really are part of the mainstream, like, I feel bad for for you on some level because you probably don't have perspective on what it feels like to be anything but mainstream. And that is honestly, I mean, look at, look at our world right now. Like that's the, that's the issue. We lack empathy for each other. Getting back to your story. Tell me about the moment when you shifted from being a freelancer to focusing all your attention on being an entrepreneur and starting the Gefilteria. The shift was really that I think Jeffrey and I really both saw this extreme gap in the culinary world where we really felt like looking around that Ashkenazi Jewish food was truly being disparaged uh, in the culinary world or being dismissed maybe is the better way of saying it. And particularly that our generation um, had no real interest in cooking these foods. Um, and also Jew, uh, also Jewish delis were closing by the dozen. Um, and so we, we both saw a crisis where we felt like foods that we loved, like gefilte fish and matzo ball soup and brisket and stuff, like we, we sort of felt like they were not going to be extinct, but that they were going to stop evolving, that they would sort of be this like nostalgia food that would get put on the shelf and you'd take it out for Rosh Hashanah and then you'd put it back. And um, and then the question was, well, if is our generation, do we even know how to cook these foods? So when it comes to us raising children or having families, are, are we going to even serve these foods anymore? Because maybe we don't even know how to make them anymore. And the perception is they're heavy, they're not healthy, they're not colorful, they're not vegetable forward, they're not if other, within our values of vegetarian and all these things. And we saw that that was an issue because we actually knew that if you zoomed out and you looked at Ashkenazi food and culture, all of our values were reflected. And in fact, um, these dishes could be so much more nuanced and special and plant-based, like all these things. It was all there. Um, and so so I don't know that I ever said, I'm going to become an entrepreneur so much as I said, you know, he and I got together and we said, like, we just we, let's address this. We see this as a as an issue, and we feel like no one else is stepping up. Let's do something about it. Um, and um, it's important to note that that was like around two thousand after the economy crashed in two thousand eight, and so a lot of people around us were starting businesses. It wasn't so crazy. Um, we really felt like we were those young people who were just trying something out among a sea of people who were who were doing that too. So it, it didn't feel so like out of bounds that we would try and do something um, like this. And also, it's not like we quit our jobs and all of a sudden this is what we were doing. You know, it started as something that was like, okay, we're cooking every day, every week. We do a, a test and then we're swapping recipes. Okay, and then we're going to, um, why don't we just sell for Passover and see what happens? And the whole thing was we sold, you know, we put it out there that we were going to sell gefilte fish for Passover. And that was in 2012 in March. And uh, we got in the New York Times, you know, and then we were entrepreneurs, right? Like before then, we were just these crazy kids trying to do something. I mean, then we had to have a real business. And, uh, you know, with any business, you, you start and you have no idea what you're doing. And then you figure it out along the way. And you continue to reinvent it because everything changes all the time. So you were feeling at points a little bit out of place in business school. At most points, yes. <laughs> so you're, what you reached for was you started to look for fellow queer people in business school, which proved pretty difficult. Why do you think they weren't there or you couldn't find them? I, you know, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations about queer folks, but 
I mean, I'm a queer person and I don't work in the corporate setting because I don't feel comfortable there. And um, I don't know how all other queer folks feel, but there's a certain level of masquerading that one has to do in that business environment. And, um, you know, it's possible that that's just not something that's super attractive to queer folks. And so maybe there's it just takes a bunch of queers to get a bunch more queers in there, you know. And for all I know, that's changed now. And, and I don't know what the stats are, but I know how I felt. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Let's head back to your schmaltzy story from the stage and see what happens. All right, let's do it. One particularly challenging day about halfway through business school, I had been in the gefilte fish kitchen chopping and grinding hundreds of pounds of onions and fish for the weekend's orders, and then I rushed into Manhattan for class, and as I rode up the escalator in my stinky t-shirt, it occurred to me that I was emitting an odor that my fellow classmates were worried would stick to their suits. What the hell was I doing there? That night, I resolved not to come back to business school the next semester. By then, the gefilteria was starting to grow. I, I, was le- I learned a bunch of business 101. I clearly was never going to make friends with my fellow entrepreneurs at business school, so I'd had enough. I was done. And then, a few days later, I got an email. I had been awarded a scholarship to business school. It was a scholarship for entrepreneurs. And so even though I was still this total business school weirdo, I was being recognized for being a weirdo. It bolstered my confidence. And since I wasn't paying for next semester, I guess I was sticking around a little bit longer. So in my last few months in school, I took finance. This was the class that I had been dreading the whole time. Now, you don't need to know what finance is. I'm not sure I do. What you should know is that it was very difficult, and it felt extremely irrelevant to my growing small food business. But I studied hard, and I did my homework, and then I sat down for the final exam. For the first time in my entire school career as an A student, my mind went blank. I literally couldn't see the words on the page. And in a period of what felt like two minutes but was actually an hour, the test period was up. I hadn't filled in any answers. I rushed to fill in the Scantron bubbles randomly. Obviously, I had failed. I would have to come back to business school again and take finance again. In desperation, I wrote to my professor an email. And I, and I explained that I was a food entrepreneur, that I had studied so hard all semester, but that my mind had gone blank in the final exam. And maybe it was because I was up late every night trying to get my business off the ground because I was passionate about what I did. I loved gefilte fish. I never heard back from my professor. I guess I was still invisible. And then, 
two weeks later, the grades came up. I had gotten a C, which meant that I had passed. I had never gotten a C before in my entire life, and I was joyous, (laughs) celebratory even. And since I had no friends from school to call, I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I got a C. I can't help but think that my professor knew that an entrepreneur's tenacity is more important than her skill at finance. And you know what? The gefilteria is still in business. And that creative condom company never even got started. Thank you. Maybe your professor had a secret love for gefilte fish? (laughs) I got to tell you, I don't think he had any idea about gefilte fish. But I think that he saw an entrepreneur and he knew that, uh, that I would be all right. So I'm very grateful to him every day. Thanks for sharing, Liz. My pleasure. And thanks for being schmaltzy. Totally. Schmaltzy is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in New York City. We'd love to hear from you, our listeners all around the world. Send us your thoughts, comments, and questions. Just record a voice memo right on your phone and email it to hi at jewishfoodsociety.org so we can share it right here. Also, we're new. Be a mensch and rate us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get this show. Schmalti is produced and edited by Elon Benatar. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi. And our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Until next time, I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Oh, you